A lot of good stuff happening at the church right now, excited about baptisms next week and feed my starving children on Friday and Saturday. Again, that baptism class tonight will just be an opportunity to teach uh, what we believe about baptism, uh, what we think it is, and what we think it is not. And you're under no obligation to be baptized if you come to the class tonight. You may be someone that's asked questions for a number of years. Who is baptism for? When should I be baptized? Those kinds of things. And we'd invite you to be a part of that tonight at 6 o'clock. No obligation to be baptized next week. But we'll get the whole thing done from uh, baptism class to time to connect with the pastors baptizing you to video testimony, which would then be played next week. All done tonight between 6 and 8. And then uh, next week we'll have the baptisms in the worship services. It'll be a great celebration as that is the initial act that Jesus has given us that we would identify with him after we've become followers of Christ. We identify with him in his death and in his resurrection in the waters of baptism. It's a great, great gift that our Lord has given. Well, this morning we are continuing in our series, uh, One is Greater Than Seven, in which we examine how um, God himself provides remedies, provide antidotes, if you will, to help us overcome the struggles that are common to all of us. And a couple weeks ago when we started this series, we noted that there's no temptation that comes to any of you that is not also common to me, that is not also common to other people in this entire room. But when we are tempted, when we are under some kind of personal struggle, God will provide a way out. He is faithful to provide a way out for us so that we need not fall into that area of temptation, whatever it might be. And so we look at these seven historic deadly sins and uh, identify ways that God would provide a remedy, a way out for us. The Zogby group, a pollster group, conducted a large poll in which respondents identified greed or materialism as the number one most urgent problem in American culture today. Another recent poll of economist readers asked, what's the deadliest sin? And greed consistently ranked number one. Surprisingly, though, we understand greed and materialism to be a big problem, but we all see it as someone else's problem. The BBC conducted another poll of uh, respondents in Great Britain asking them to rank the seven deadly sins and which of them they were most likely to commit in a recent study, and which of them they had committed in the previous month. And across the board, people said last on the list was greed or materialism. Even though it was the number, the number one problem for other people, it was the least of all problems for themselves. Almost all Americans agree that greed is a serious problem in our culture today for someone else. Tim Keller argues, even though it's clear that the world is filled with greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it is true of themselves because, he explains, greed hides itself from the victim. Now, that could be stated for all of the seven deadly sins, that they hide themselves from the victim, but it seems to be truest of greed that we see it as someone else's problem but certainly not something that we ourselves have to deal with. So it'd probably be helpful to define greed for a moment today and then give some contemporary examples and then again look at God's remedy from the Scriptures for us. I defined greed as an excessive or even insatiable desire 
to get what we do not have and to keep what we do have. There's two parts to it. There is a successive desire to get what I don't have and then to hoard, to keep that which I do have. So, I notice at Menards, there's this beautiful 18-volt power drill for sale for only $119.99. And I happened to just get a 14-volt power drill only a couple years ago. But why is it that I feel in my belly this need for this 18-volt power drill when my 14-volt does just fine? And then I'll go ahead and get that 18-volt. And instead of giving away that 14-volt drill, I'll hold on to it because, you know, you never know when some fix-it guy needs to use two of them at once. It's this excessive desire to get and then to keep what we do have. And as such, it is never satisfied. It's this bottomless pit that exhausts us. It's an exhausting, endless effort to fill out without ever reaching satisfaction Greed is never satisfied. Now, again, I'm sure this is not true of any of us in this room. It's only for other people. But hypothetically, maybe someday you'll have an opportunity to disciple someone in some other part of the world who struggles from time to time with greed. And if that's ever the case, then perhaps today's notes can help. Why don't we start um, this morning with a little bit of uh, game show activity for a pretty heavy topic. I know when we talk about greed, you're always talking about money, and that always feels heavy. But we'll, we'll start here this morning with a little bit of laughs. We're going to play a little game show in which I put a quote up on the screen, and you have to guess who said that quote, okay? Some contemporary examples and some older examples. And the louder and the more guesses, the better. Will you please participate with me? Okay. All right. Let's join in. Here's the first one. We have those who win get... A big round of applause, no money. Okay. (laughs) We have always known that heedless self-interest was bad morals. We now know that it's bad economics. Who said that? Who did I hear? Ben Franklin? Very close. Roosevelt. President Roosevelt said that, as I just heard over on this side of the room. Okay, we got a winner over there, yeah. Whoever that was who said President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Okay, here's the second one. The point is, more contemporary example, the point is that you can't be too greedy. Who said that? Donald Trump said that. Okay. I am not making any political statements. I promise you I'm not. That's the last thing I'm doing. I'm not a political guy to stand up and make any political. This is just contemporary and historic examples, okay? All right, whoever said Donald Trump, round of applause for you. Out of his book, The Art of the Deal. Here's probably the most famous quote. How much money is necessary to make a man happy? Just a little bit more. And who said that? John Rockefeller, perhaps the wealthiest man in all of history, hit the nail on the head when he said, if you're looking for money to give you happiness, you'll be looking forever. How about this one? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house. You shall not desire your neighbor's house his field or his male servant, his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Who said that? God the Father said that to Moses on Mount Sinai, the 10th commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 5. 
If you buy things you don't need, soon you will have to sell things that you need. Warren Buffett, I just heard. Warren Buffett, Nebraska's own, said that. If you buy things that you don't need, soon you'll have to sell things that you need. Now, last one. Many of us will get this. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Jesus of Nazareth, God's own son, said that in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. We'll turn there now, Luke chapter 12. And as we do, we shouldn't be surprised that the teachings of the Old and the New Testament run counter to the teachings of our culture, to the teachings of politicians, to the teachings oftentimes even of our parents. And perhaps this is nowhere more so than when we talk about money. So Jesus is teaching here on the subject of covetousness, the subject of greed in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. And the context, if I can, is uh, he's gathered on a hillside outside of the Sea of Galilee. And if you ever have an opportunity to go to the Sea of Galilee, you'll see these large hills right outside the sea where you can look down on the sea. And there are these natural coves inside the hill. And the natural coves serve to be amphitheaters of sorts on the Sea of Galilee. So you read in the New Testament frequently that Jesus had thousands of people at one time listening to his message. And that's because, quite literally, a teacher could stand on the top of this hillside and people would gather around in these coves and they would listen to the great teacher or the rabbis, whoever they might be, shout from the hillsides and thousands could hear at a time. And that's exactly what's happening here, as it says in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, that when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling on one another to hear Jesus' words. And he began to teach his disciples first. And he's teaching his disciples about the fear of man. And he's teaching the disciples then after that about living with spiritual integrity before God and men. And he's saying, you confess God before men, and you don't act in one way before people and in another way in your prayer closet, but you act with spiritual integrity no matter where you go. And as he's teaching in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21, there's someone in the crowd that stands up and basically says, I didn't come to hear all of that Jesus. And that's where we pick up the scene in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, some of the crowd interrupts him. You imagine from the second or third row here, someone stands up and interrupts and says, teacher, that's not what I'm here for. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus steps down from his intended teaching in this moment. He steps down and he said to him, man, who made me the judge or the arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, against all greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told the man a parable. He told the crowd a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. 
And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many, many years. Relax, eat, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's quite a statement from Jesus. So again, you imagine the scene that here, here is this man, again in the third row, and, and, and he said, I didn't come to hear all of that, Jesus. I came because I want you, you're now known as a great teacher, I want you to settle the dispute that I have with my brother. Our father died and he left us the, this inheritance, this, uh, this farm, and uh, my brother's not being fair about the farm. And Jesus says, who, who made me your arbiter? He said, who made me your judge? And it's not that Jesus doesn't want fairness. Of course he'd want fairness. But as Jesus frequently did, he had this annoying habit of taking people's individual questions and then speaking to broader issues that would affect everyone in the crowd. So he takes this individual question from this man, and he uses an opportunity to share a parable that would affect everyone that is in the crowd that day. And he used this parable to speak about a rich man who continued to build bigger and bigger storehouses, bigger and bigger barns to store his grain so that he could have an easy life. Now that, of course, all the farmers in the room know was his first mistake, right? There is no easy life for farmers. But... Jesus doesn't call him a fool because of that. He goes on to use this fighting word. He calls this hypothetical man in the story, in the parable, a fool. Again, not the real man that asked the question, but in the parable form, he's saying any person who would say, I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry, and I'm going to be rich in this world, he calls that man a fool. And why? Why does he call such a person who lives that kind of life, who chooses to be rich toward this world, but not rich toward God, a fool? At least a couple reasons could be found. First, all riches, as Jesus says here, can be gone in an instant. Can they not? Gone like that. And I understand the recent recession didn't affect Kearney quite as much as it did many other places, but I knew many people where I came from who instantly lost 75, 80% of their net worth in the course of a few months in 2008, 2009. So, Jesus said elsewhere, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves and stock markets break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That doesn't mean don't invest. You can invest. But if you're storing up for yourselves treasures on earth without even more, storing up for yourself treasures in heaven, you will be sorely disappointed, he's saying. Second, he says, in addition to the fact that all riches are fleeting, because this man deemed that possessions and being merry and eating and drinking to one's full and having full storehouses, full barns, was the summit of human joy, he was missing out on the fullness of what God would have for him. Do you see? When we think of the things in this world as the summit of human joy, we miss out on the real riches that God has for us. Thus Jesus says in verse 21, 
so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We all have seen this, haven't we? Haven't we all seen people who lay up lots and lots of treasure for themselves but are not rich toward God? We see all the time people who own practically everything, it seems, and they store up more and more, bigger and bigger boats and bigger and bigger yachts and bigger and bigger houses and more and more stuff, but they lack simple joy. And they lack real love in the relationships. And they lack an abiding peace. Not all, but we've all seen those examples. And we simultaneously see many who seemingly don't have much, and yet they have the fruit of the Spirit in them. And those people speak to the riches that are found in God. Now, all of this begs the question for us, what does it mean to be rich? As Jesus says in verse 21, what does it mean to be rich toward God? And I think as it relates to money, what it means to be rich toward God is this. Two simple words. And if you get nothing else, remember these two words. Contentment and generosity. First is contentment. Contentment, as I would define it here for this purpose today, is give thanks for what you have. The content person give thanks for what they have. They look for opportunities to have gratitude for all that God has given. If God has given me much or God has given me little, I am choosing to be content because He is supplying all of my needs according to His glorious riches, which are in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. Allow me to suggest three reasons that greed is so dangerous for us and how it undermines contentment. Greed nags at us by saying to us, by whispering to us, you never have enough. You never have enough. Greed has that nagging voice that says, you, you, you never have enough. There was a study done in 1992 that asked people, how much money is necessary for you to achieve the good life, to achieve the American dream? And people who, had, who made $24,000 a year said all they needed was $50,000 a year to achieve the good life, to have the American dream. And people who made $100,000 a year said all they needed was $192,000 a year to achieve the good life, to have the American dream. And in essence, across all demographics, people said they needed double what they currently make to achieve the good life, to have the American dream. Greed just has his way of nagging at us, saying, no matter what you have, you need more. Never enough. Second, greed is an attack on God's character. Greed questions God's ability to provide the basic necessities for his children. Greed says, God, what you would give me is not enough, and so I have to hoard I don't trust you. I really don't trust you to provide for my basic needs, which he promises to provide for. Greed cultivates ingratitude. It is an attack on God's character. When we are greedy, we are attacking God's character. And finally, greed thrives on comparison, so it is inherently discontent. I see some kids in the audience here today. I know we have middle schoolers and high schoolers here today. We have college students. And I tell you what, if I could give one message to kids, if I give one message to youth, 
in our increasingly consumeristic culture, it would probably be this one. Cultivate the discipline of being thankful for all that you have. Cultivate the discipline of being thankful for all that you have and choosing not to compare with others who have more and choosing not to compare with others who have less. Because the comparison game is a thief of joy. Here's something that you can take to the bank. Comparison, whether you have a lot or a little, is always a thief of joy. When we compare, you will always find some kids who have more. And so when you find those kids who have more, you, you tend to think of yourself as not having enough. And, and then perhaps you see this sin called envy rising up and covetousness rising up. Then you compare with those who have a lot less, and then you see this sin of pride rising up. Look how much I have compared to all of you. And either way, it's a thief of joy. What God would have us do is to recognize He gives some the capacity to make more and some the capacity to make less, but God would have us share with each other, and some will always have more and some would always have less, but He will provide for our basic needs, and what we want to do is cultivate this discipline of contentment that says, I am thankful for all that God has provided. Because someone will always have more and someone will always have less, and to compare is a thief of joy. Probably a good lesson for adults, too, I might add. In 1 Timothy 6, if you want to turn over there, the Apostle Paul goes even further than Jesus does. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 The Apostle Paul says this, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not of all evil, that's a mistranslation of the original language. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not the only evil. It's not the root of evil. It's all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What a statement from the Apostle Paul. I encourage you just to allow that to sink in for a moment. It is through this evil, the love of money, that many have wandered away from the faith because they've become content, far too easily pleased with the wrong things. They've pierced themselves as a result with many pangs. Fortunately, Paul also provides the antidote here. He says in verse 6, but godliness with contentment, it says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Oh, what a word this is for us, that to live a life of holiness, to live a life of goodness before God, that I I seek to be content before my God, to, to be thankful for all that He has given I, I seek his righteousness now that, rather than the righteous standards of the world, which are far different than the righteous standards of God. I choose his righteous standards, his good standards. I want to dwell with him. I want to receive my abundance from him. I want to know more of his love, to abide in him and to do what he says, to practice what he says. And you know, if we do that, we will find life in the kingdom of God. We'll find true riches and true abundance as we do that. And godliness with contentment is great gain. Could you say that out loud with me? Godliness with contentment is great gain. That's a verse to memorize this week. I tell you, that's a life-changing verse to remind ourselves and our kids over and over again to 
pursue righteousness and goodness and contentment, that will lead me to true abundance because a man or woman's life does not consist in abundance of possessions but in much deeper realities. We counteract greed with contentment and we counteract greed with generosity. I've defined generosity this way. Spending less than you could and giving more than others think you should. Spending less than you could spend, but then giving more than other people think that you should spend. Again, every good and perfect gift that we have has come from God, James chapter 1 says. And so the generous person says, God, I receive this with an open hand, and I live with an open hand. Easy come, easy go. Whatever you've given me, Lord, I want it to be useful for your kingdom purposes. Easy come, easy go. It's not mine. I am merely a steward of whatever you have given me. I want to live with an open hand. This church is so exceedingly generous. I've been amazed at it in the past seven months now that I've been here. I've been so blessed by the generosity of this church. And I just tell you, keep it up because generosity is a gift to us to counteract the natural tendency of every heart, which is greed. That's the natural tendency of all of our hearts. You know, there's even this tendency that we have, which is to tell people to be less generous when they become generous people. Have you noticed that? Um, a, a young man that I mentored a number of years ago was an exceedingly generous young man. He was very, very merciful. And his style was that he would have 10 bucks and he would go out to eat to McDonald's and, and spend a few bucks. And, and he got to know a number of ho- homeless people in Boulder County. And so um, he would go to those same homeless people as often as he could and he'd bring them meals from McDonald's. Bring them meals from Chick-fil-A. And this is a kid who's 18 years old and he doesn't have a, a dime to his name. But he gets 10 bucks and he says, I'm going to go bring these guys who might be hungry sell some meals. And I remember his dad coming and talking to me about that, and he said, you know, Adrian, it's just hard because i got to teach him. He's, he's got to develop responsibility with money. He's got to learn how to save. I, I know. I get it. I mean, that's important. I, I agree. He came back to me months later, and he said, I was in the wrong, Adrian. How I needed to be taught by my son what it is to be more generous than other people think you should be. To live with an open hand, easy come, easy go. I mean, think about it. Your financial advisor will tell you to be less generous if you get really, really generous. Your own soul will tell you to be less generous if you start to live really, really generously. There will be a fight within your heart in which the old person says, no, 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 pull back a little bit. I struggle with this too. I mean, these are the seven deadly sins for pastors too, I might add. I've personally found that we can attack greed by practicing lavish generosity, and we also can attack greed by spending a little bit less on ourselves than we could naturally afford. You you know, you you might see that that you can afford something that's much more expensive, or you could choose to buy something that's less expensive, and and you choose that something that's less expensive, you say, I'm going to take that which is extra, and I'm going to give that. I mean, we recently bought a trampoline for our kids, and I probably could have gotten free Wi-Fi on that trampoline these days. You know, but I don't need more Wi-Fi in my house. I don't need more Wi-Fi on my lawn. I, I don't need more Wi-Fi in my car, I might add. Okay, all the bells and whistles, all the internet connectivity, it, 
it actually distracts sometimes from the deeper and the better things in life. And so sometimes saying no to some of the bells and whistles actually does a good service to us. You don't need to listen to the advertisers who tell us that we constantly need more. That more and that more and that more frequently distracts us from the good things that God has for us. Now, Paul concludes his message to Timothy here as he's counteracting greed and he's providing this countercultural influence of contentment and generosity. And he concludes his message here to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus in verse 17 to 19. And he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be prideful in their riches, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves in heaven as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What a beautiful statement from the Apostle Paul. There's so many things to notice in that, and you notice as I read, there are a number of lines that I underlined. Paul says there, command those who are rich in this present age. He presumes, not socialism, he presumes that there will be people who are rich. There will be some that have more, and there will be some that have less. But either way, command those who are rich to be generous, to live with an open hand with all that God has given them, to be rich in good deeds. And either way, no matter what, whether you have a lot or you have a little, Paul says here, you get to enjoy some of it. Amen? You get to enjoy some of it, just not all of it. Okay, that's part of God's good blessing to us that we can enjoy some of it, not all of it, because if we were trying to enjoy all of it, it would strangle us. It would strangle us. So command them to be rich in good deeds, generous and ready to share. Now that, of course, begs the question, which I can hear ringing from the rose right now, well, Adrian, how much? Do I have to tithe in this New Testament age? And I'm not going to attack that today. We'll attack it another day, okay? Can I get an Amen. <laughs> we'll attack that another day. But I do want to say, wrong question. I do want to say, wrong question. The question is not, how much do I have to give? Do I have to tithe? It's not the question. The question is, how much has God given me? And how can I use what He has given me? My time, my talents my treasures, for his glory? How can I use all that he has given me? Yes, to enjoy some of it, but also to benefit those around me, to benefit those across the world, to be a conduit of his love, to be a conduit of his generosity, and to extend his kingdom. That's the question. Well, are you telling me, Adrian, that God needs that money? No. God is needy of nothing. God needs not a dime. I'm telling you that you need it. I'm telling you that I need it. God doesn't give us the gift of generosity because he needs the money. He gives us the gift of generosity because 
We need it to counteract grief. And God would have that we would be part of his work across the world, conduits of his multiple resources to bless those all around us. And God would have us give generously to the church because the church is entrusted to build up disciples and to preserve families and to preserve communities and to send out the good news wherever we would go, wherever we live. And God would have us give generously to missionaries so that we would reach those who were unreached. And God would have us give generously to the poor because poverty stinks. Poverty stinks. And we hate it, just as God hates it. And so we want to give generously to the poor. And God would have us give because guess what? Giving is fun. (laughs) Think about that. Giving is fun. Jesus himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more happy. That's what makarios in the original Greek, blessed is happy. Makarios. It's more happy to give than to receive. And many of you have experienced this, that it's more happy, it's more joyous to give, to live with an open hand than simply to receive. It just is. There's a certain joy to being a generous person. You meet a generous person, I almost guarantee you, that is a joyous person. I can't wait to hear more and more of these stories that I've already heard about kids. You've probably heard some of these. They're doing all these little fundraisers for hunger to hope. And some of them have already raised $100 or $150. And I can't wait to hear about how they've given their $10 and they raised $100. And as a result of that $100, they're going to be able to make 455 meals for kids in need. And the joy that's going to cultivate for those kids. And I'm not going to stand in their way. Forget about it. And I would just invite you to pray about this as our family is praying about this. How can we give to Hunger to Hope or to the church or to a missionary, or to whatever it is. I don't want to tell you who, or how, or where. But whatever it is that you believe God is using to extend his purposes in the world, pray about that. As we talk about the sin of greed here, and the remedy, which is contentment and generosity, talk as a family, and pray as a family. Over the next week, just say, God, how would you have us increasingly live generous lives with all that you have given And we'll trust in him for the increase, whatever that might be, for each of us. No expectation from any of us other than this. God, you've given us all, and we desire to use what you have given for your purposes. Would you change us in the process that greed would be mortified, generosity and contentment would only increase? Let's pray for that. Would you join me? God in heaven, how thankful we are that you have given us so much. Far more than we need, you have entrusted to us. And Father, we pray that you would grow in us a spirit of deep contentment, thankfulness for all that you have provided. And we pray, Lord, that you would work against the natural inclination of every heart, which is to possess, which is to covet, And we would take seriously what you have said. And we ask, God, that you would lead us individually, by our families, and across our church to be more generous to the one who has given it all for us. And Father, I want to pray this morning also for any in this room who just quiver, who shiver 
at this topic. Some might shiver at this topic because they want to hold on to all they have. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work in their hearts. You do your work. It's not about my words. It's your words, Lord Jesus. And I pray for others who shiver because the truth is, right now, it is so difficult to make ends meet. I pray for anyone in that place. Poverty is so hard. Not having enough is so difficult. And I pray, God, that you would meet their every need according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And I ask as well, Lord, that you would even give them the courage to let me know or one of our pastors or one of our deacons or deaconesses know that we care for them, that we love them, that we want to partner with them, and they're not alone. This message is not equally for all of us, and when you are in a place of deep hurt, poverty, um, we, we say as a church we want to help. So, Father, thank you for that reminder for us too. We love you, Lord, and we desire to respond to you now in worship. Would you receive our praise in Christ's name? Amen.